The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There was a certain degree of luck that meant uh, that the Iranian initial response was significant enough for the leadership to take some uh, sense of, of pride and, and say to their own people that they had not simply let this attack go unresponded. But it also may have scared them off, combined with uh, the negative backlash to the downing of the Ukraine airline civilian passenger jet, may have scared them off uh, in terms of, of trying to launch a, a wider series of retaliations against the United States. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 5th, 2022. Two years ago this week, the head of the Quds Force of the Iranian Revolutionary God, Qasem Soleimani, was killed in an American strike. At the time, we had a group of Brookings and Lawfare experts discussing it. Suzanne Maloney, the head of foreign policy studies at Brookings and an Iran specialist. Dan Byman, terrorism expert, Middle East scholar, and Lawfare's foreign policy editor. And Scott R. Anderson, Lawfare senior editor and Brookings fellow. At the time, we talked about the potential benefits and risks of the strike. And two years later, we got the gang back together to find out what two years has wrought. Was the threat of terrorism and escalation in response to the strike overstated? Were U.S. interests harmed in Iraq as a result of the strike? And what may have kept the Iranian regime from stronger action than it eventually took? It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 5th, the Soleimani strike, two years later. All right, so we gathered some time back to discuss the assassination of General Soleimani, and we expressed a variety of concerns and worries and policy challenges that the action might induce. Dan, get us started. What were the worries and how do you think the past has actually borne them out? So two big worries dominated my thinking, at least. One was that the Iranians would aggressively respond, the Trump administration would respond to the Iranian response and so on, and we would go from a killing with a limited response to a broader conflagration that would affect U.S. forces, that would affect U.S. allies, and could otherwise spin out of control. 
A second fear was that the Iranians would at some point do a very massive response somewhere in the world. This could be against a U.S. facility, it could be against U.S. officials and civilians as payback for Soleimani. And as I'm sure we'll discuss, they have done some responses. But what I would point out in both my concerns, to my knowledge, uh, nothing of the sort has happened, at least at the scale I feared at the time. So I have to say that the biggest concerns I have, biggest fears I had, were not realized. Can I add one more concern to Dan's list, uh, which I think was my focus as somebody who has spent a lot of time thinking about Iraq, which is that my concern after the Soleimani strike, and I do actually think this has been borne out substantially, was that it was going to create political conditions that would substantially degrade the United States and other associated states' ability to operate in Iraq, maintain a positive relationship with the Iraqi government, and continue to pursue the counter-ISIS campaign there. As I mentioned, we should get into more detail on this. I think that actually is the front where there has been significant decline and real problems arising in the Soleimani wave. Not as dramatic as I think I feared as the worst case scenario might be at the time, uh, but substantial nonetheless. But I think that's a third front that sometimes gets a little overlooked when uh, people are thinking of this as a U.S.-Iran conflict and ignoring the, the third state in which it happened. What about you, Suzanne? What were your principal concerns and to what extent do you think the two years that have followed have borne them out? Well, I find myself in um, wild agreement with both Dan and Scott in terms of the issues that they've raised um, from an immediate response and uh, implications for U.S. forces in the region, longer-term retaliatory attacks uh, in a massive way against the United States, and the fallout for Iraq in particular. I think those were all kind of front and center at the time, and I and I think you know Dan put it very aptly that. You know, the, the big attacks, the really um, dramatic sort of retaliation that we anticipated did not happen with the, ex- the exception of the um, ballistic missile attack on U.S. forces, which was more substantial and, and, and at a high, higher level of risk than we fully appreciated at the time. And, and so that we haven't seen the kind of trailer effect of, of you know, kind of sequels and, and a, a wider escalation. As Scott indicated, the assassination of Soleimani really did uh, compound what I think was already a a, a very firm trend underway in terms of the U.S. posture in Iraq, the degree of autonomy to which Iraqi leaders uh, made their decisions, the amount of influence that the United States has on specific political outcomes within Iraq, and the long-term prospects for the United States shaping a a better future for Iraq, I think all of those were negatively impacted by the attack on Soleimani. What we didn't see and what we, you know, I think at the time wondered quite a bit about was the domestic political impact within Iran. Uh, There was, of course, the the very immediate rally around the flag effect uh, with massive protests condemning the United States and, and, you know, sort of Uh, supporting uh, and venerating Soleimani as a national figure. Uh, But then that was very sharply reversed after the accidental shootdown of a civilian aircraft by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard that cost the lives of more than 160 mostly Iranian expatriates um, who were living abroad. 
and that, in fact, returned, I think, some of the, the sense of frustration that many, uh, at least in the diaspora, and certainly that many within Iran felt with the regime. And so we haven't seen a clear political impact um, within Iran. And I think that, from my standpoint, as someone who watches the, the future of the country, has been the most interesting non-effect of the Soleimani assassination. All right. So let's go through each of these effects individually. But before we do, uh, Suzanne, it would be helpful for those listeners who have had their minds over the last two years blotted out by insurrections and COVID and all sorts of things uh, not involving Iran. Remind us who Soleimani was and what happened two years ago this week. Soleimani was the uh, commander of Iran's uh, Quds Force, the overseas arm of the Revolutionary Guard Corps. He was renowned for his role in marshalling resistance forces in a number of key conflicts, both the Syrian civil war, the response uh, to U.S. presence in Iraq over the long term, as well as Iranian interventions in Yemen and other conflicts around the region. He had developed something of a very pronounced, unique, um, and charismatic reputation among Iranians and more widely around the uh, broader region uh, as someone who was essentially all-powerful, incredibly savvy about maneuvering, and um, incredibly effective in terms of extending Iranian influence. Uh, His assassination by the United States alongside uh, the commander of one of the key militia groups in Iraq was a, a very significant escalation in terms of U.S. efforts to try to counter Iranian influence around the region, both because of his personal stature and because of the um, very blatantness of this attack in the midst of a, a, a wider escalation of pressure under the uh, Trump administration. And so it was a dramatic uh, milestone that uh, led the United States and Iran to the brink of war, uh, closer to the brink of war than at any time, I would argue, uh, at least since the late 1980s and possibly at any time really since the 1979 revolution. All right. So let's go through the various factors that you all have laid out. Dan, let's start with the first one, the benefits of taking out a major figure like this. What can we say, if anything, about what effect this has had on Iranian capabilities or on, you know, any any deterrent effect it may have had? What did we gain over the last two years by not having Qasem Soleimani around? This sort of thing is always very difficult to judge because it's easy to project whatever answer you want onto the kind of blank uh, screen that is our knowledge of, you know, Iran's internal politics when it comes to things like their assassination campaigns and their support for various militant groups. So I want to be very cautious about what I say. One thing that the Iranians have done in the Quds Force and their kind of broader paramilitary operations is they've institutionalized things to a pretty impressive degree. So the Iranian capabilities are pretty widespread in many parts of the Middle East. There are a lot of very competent commanders. So it's not as if their nefarious activities were hanging on one man. Um, So taking him out didn't, I think, substantially change their capabilities. 
But I would note two things. Uh, one is that Suleimani was a very competent and charismatic figure. Uh, so it's unclear, it takes time to judge this, just how successful his uh, successor will be and just how competent. But also the public figure that Suleimani cut was unusual. And we're not going to see that sort of, we're not seeing that sort of charismatic figure emerge. Uh, the deterrent question is even harder. And part of this is because the United States has been trying to limit its Middle East presence and has made it clear under both President Trump and now President Biden that it is not prioritizing the Middle East. So it's hard to judge uh, when the U.S. position is, if not in retreat, at least not aggressively going forward, um, how much uh, Iranian behavior is due to that very big factor and how much is due to the killing of Suleimani. My guess is that there are a lot of things on the uh, that are shaping the Iranian decision-making, and the killing of Soleimani, to me, was more a sign that they were concerned about escalation with the United States, and that has always been an Iranian concern, but this was a very vivid reminder of that, rather than a direct deterrent. But I'm sure both Scott and Suzanne have a lot of thoughts on this question, too. Scott? I agree with everything that I think Dan said, and particularly the, the difficulty of measuring something like this. But I think we also need to think about, frankly, the things the United States lost or was cost by killing Soleimani. Wait, we're going to get to those. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to be systematic about this. And- well, I'm trying I mean specifically about Soleimani himself. Okay. It's because the issue here is that Soleimani was a figure with which the United States had had a weird relationship, for lack of a better way to put it, an indirect relationship in a lot of ways, but to which it was a known quantity um, to, in some extents. He had been around for a very long time. There was a sense that he was able to exercise a degree of control over particularly proxy actors in Iraq and elsewhere in the region. I'm, I'm mostly familiar with the Iraq context, but he had this de- relationship with these militia groups where he was able to exercise a degree of soft power for a better way of uh, lack of a better way of describing it on top of the hard power and hard incentives that Iran was able to offer um, that made him a figure with a great deal of influence and notably one that the United States, while often at very direct loggerheads with, at times also was able to reach points of accommodation or points of even cooperation with. Particularly after the U.S. troop withdrawal uh, in 2011, the level of hostilities and attacks to which Various Iran-backed militias in Iraq had were attacking U.S. military and diplomatic presence in the United States rapidly dropped very suddenly in a coordinated effort. I think the popular assumption is that that was an effort undertaken by Iran at Soleimani in particular was able to execute. During the uh, counter-ISIS offensive, we saw Iran-backed militia groups that were built up rapidly in this period that will become the popular mobilization forces that today have such a strong role in the country to some extent, even kind of coordinating with U.S. forces, or at least acting in a way complementary to U.S. forces, not through any necessarily elements of direct coordination, but in a sense that there was a another party on the other side with which they could coordinate. A lot of people seem to think that that has gone away with Soleimani's death, that his replacement hasn't been able to exercise the same degree of control or have the same somewhat more pragmatic at times worldview around some of these issues. And this has been most representative in the hostilities between Iraqi militias, Iran-backed militias in Iraq, 
and the actual Iraqi government itself to the point that Iran-backed militias in Iraq are believed to have attempted to assassinate the prime minister of Iraq with explosives-laden drones this past November, an act that most reporting from Iran from other places that I've seen strongly suggests the Iranian government did not support and did not act, but that they simply did not have that degree of control or weren't exercising it effectively. Multiple people in Iraq, multiple officials who have dealt with Soleimani and a lot of the parties in this said this would never have happened under Soleimani. There are upsides and downsides of that, but it's, you know, you, we have traded by killing Soleimani, the United States traded the devil they knew for the devil they didn't. And I think there are costs inherent in that that people have discounted. Suzanne, what do you think? What are the, the pros and cons from an operational standpoint uh, with respect to Iran's capability and command and control of having done this with two years of hindsight? Well, I I think, you know, you have to look at the environment and question how much uh, positive impact it may have had um, if we're still effectively facing the same or an even more degraded environment for U.S. influence in the key arenas and if our challenge in trying to address Iran's nuclear ambitions has become even more thorny and complex. I, I think the, the calculation at the time was that Soleimani's departure from the scene would knock the Iranian leadership off guard, that it would in some way constrain their ability to operate in the same sort of very open fashion. Um, Soleimani made no effort to conceal his travel, he you know, was essentially uh, considered himself almost invulnerable to, to U.S. reach, and that could no longer be assumed after his assassination. There was at least some evidence at the time that the assassination was not just an attempt to take out one high-profile target that happened to, to, to wrap in another in the form of one of the senior commanders of the the Iraqi militia forces, uh, Abdul Mahdi Mohandis, um, who in many ways is at least as significant a figure in terms of coordinating and overseeing uh, the activity of those groups, but that it, there, there were at least there was at least some evidence at the time that there were some uh, aborted operations in Yemen. This may have been part of a wider effort to wrap up and um, wind down and constrain. Iran's access, as well as its proxies across uh, key theaters of conflict. If that was the intent, it did not succeed. We see that you know all of these groups were at least as uh, enmeshed and at least as violent as they were two years ago. There are questions today about the level of Iranian command and control in, in each of these theaters. I think those questions may have emerged even with Soleimani. There was a a tendency to, at times, attribute uh, an almost kind of superhuman quality to him, something that the Iranians absolutely cultivated in terms of trying to create uh, the sense of, uh, of empowerment and, and invulnerability. But I think, you know, these are conflicts that have uh, taken on a much more local uh, flavor in many respects. The Syrian civil war and the Iranian role there was always going to be transforming, irrespective. And uh, the role of technology, I think, has changed as well. The fact that the Iranians uh, were at the time and have continued to disseminate access to 
drone attack drones and effectively hand the the, the keys to the, this technology to their proxies in a way that doesn't require the same level of coordination. So Soleimani may have been able to, uh, and and with him uh, Mohandis, they may have been able to uh, impose a greater degree of discipline over some of these proxies. But I think we were always going to see this level of increased chaos and difficulty in these conflicts. Um, so so when you kind of look back on this episode, given that there were significant injuries to uh, a number of American service personnel in Iraq at the time, given that it um, had a you know sort of near crisis effect that has almost been forgotten, as you noted at the beginning of this discussion, because of everything that's happened since then, um, it's hard to, to, to really appreciate what the net positives of the attack were, um, other than to sort of give the United States an opportunity to take credit for having eliminated one of the, the most uh, deadly figures in the Middle East over the course of recent years. All right. So let's talk about downsides. And let's start with uh, the one that Dan flagged at the beginning as not having really materialized, which is the capacity for massive escalation. And Suzanne, as you point out, that this is a, it it was a crisis at the time that it happened. And so um, I guess, Suzanne, get us started on this. Why didn't it develop and escalate into a bigger problem than it was? It's a very good question because it defies uh, all the predictions of um, anyone who'd kind of focused on Iran or on Iran's uh, role in Iraq and the kind of attending uh, policy of supporting militants around the region. Um, Iran usually has sought to find ways to demonstrate that it can retaliate and to make the individuals themselves even pay a price um, for conflict. And so, um, you know, I think this has been a a very unusual couple of years. For the one thing, Iran was one of the first countries hit by coronavirus outside of East Asia. And um, because of the unwillingness for a long time and and unavailability uh, of Western vaccines, um, the Iranians have continued to kind of roll with multiple successive waves of COVID that have had a significant impact on society and on the economy. I think the Iranians also made a a very strategic calculation, which is um, quite typical of the leadership in terms of um, assessing the the costs, relative costs and benefits, um, given the position they were in of a a really name brand, attributable retaliatory uh, action against the United States or any of its uh, partners around the world. And that is simply that they have been able to marshal at least some uh, public sympathy and support uh, and diplomatic support and and paint the United States as the country at fault um, for uh, the the failure of the nuclear agreement to be implemented on either side. And I think that, you know, sort of putting themselves on the wrong side of that diplomacy as a result of a terrorist attack that could be attributed to them, they recognized that that would essentially undo any prospect of um, managing a very tense domestic and regional situation. And so I think it, you know, it's a, it's pure pragmatism on the part of the Iranians, as well as the fact that, you know, they can point to their own strike on U.S. troops in Iraq as a, a fairly significant escalation 
and one to which the United States did not respond immediately in turn, um, and in effect gives them, at least from the perspective of Tehran, something of an upper hand. So, Dan, what is your take on the escalation that wasn't? I mean, people probably forget this, but two years ago, we were actually contemplating the possibility of a war with Iran. And, you know, now we're contemplating a possibility of an invasion of Ukraine instead. Why did this blow over? So I think Suzanne put it perfectly when she talked about the pragmatism of the Iranian leaders, right? It's always you know, tempting to kind of portray their decision-making as highly ideological, but they've always shown a very healthy respect for U.S. military power in particular and often tried to calibrate their response to recognize their military weakness. And they were able to claim at least you know, token forms of victory or token forms of resistance in Iraq. Um, and they had a lot going on at home, as Suzanne outlines. I would add as well that um, they were um, hopeful that the Trump administration would eventually be a thing of the past and that they could again negotiate with the United States and the international community. And avoiding an escalation, being seen, frankly, as the more responsible party was, I think, part of their calculus as well. Having said all that, uh, this was a surprise to me. I think I predicted on this podcast that Iran would uh, be looking for um, more serious escalations, and um, we didn't see what at least I predicted. So one one question about that, which is, you know, one thing the Iranians have shown over the years is patience. And should we be terribly surprised if we see the massive escalation that we expected two years ago, say this year, uh, in just kind of deferred gratification, or is the risk of it genuinely passed at this point? So when these retaliations happen, it's often tempting to think of them as, you know, this country or this terrorist group has been patiently waiting for an opportunity and then jumped at it. Often what they're doing is constantly scouting out possibilities for attacks and then deciding whether or not to go forward based on the political conditions of the moment. So I could easily imagine an attack happening in six months if conditions deteriorate and then Iran saying this is revenge for Soleimani. But a host of other things would also be involved in that decision. And so I think it's possible that Iran in fact, even likely has a number of contingency plans to use violence against the United States, its allies in a range of different ways. But whether or not it greenlights this will depend both on the domestic situation in Iran and how Iran perceives the likely U.S. response and international response. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had Lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports, 
uh, at Delete Me. You know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Scott, you were, as I recall, very concerned about escalation as well. In retrospect, was that concern overstated on your part, or or do you feel like the fact that the Iranians tactically decided not to uh, doesn't really affect the calculation? It, it's a good question. I actually need to go back and listen to exactly what, what I said to see whether I was right or not, because I should check my work on this. Um, my recollection going into this is is that I think the area where I was most concerned, again, the reflecting my very Iraq-oriented lens, is that the you were likely to see a ratcheting up of military and violent pressure on U.S. military diplomatic presences in Iraq. I think that actually has happened. And we should get into that, but I suspect that's the next line of questioning or lead us down. So I'm not going to go into more detail on that here, except to note that that is in other periods of heightened tension in U.S.-Iran relations for the last 10 years, the easiest outlet for the desire to express and put pressure is on the very substantial diplomatic and military presence the United States has in Iraq, which is very vulnerable to pressure from Iranians. Now, that itself has also been limited to some degree, more limited than I would have expected at the time in terms of its success. And we can talk about why that is. Um, I do think the coronavirus, is, as Suzanne noted, and frankly, the diplomatic context, which is happening, the fact that Iran is involved in a, a, a international posture where they have reasons to not look like they're supporting terrorist attacks really factored into this maybe more heavily and uh, I think should maybe be taken into account in the broader strategic picture of how we approach Iran. The one other fact I would just flag here is that in the one major uh, response we did see Iran directly undertake January 8th rocket attacks, we have to bear in mind they also humiliated themselves by shooting down a civilian airliner. You know, they injured 110 American service members, I think was the final count. At the time, it wasn't even clear that that many were injured. I think earlier counts were far lower. That's kind of the year or two after the number of people who have suffered concussions and traumatic brain injuries um, from the concussive force of these explosions. Uh, but they killed 178 or 176 passengers, many of whom were Iranian citizens. I kind of suspect that that may have knocked their tempo off um, and triggered some as you would expect it to, if something were to happen, you know, for U.S. political leadership, uh, similar to say, okay, wait a second, we just did a major 
misstep here. We need to think about and think a little more carefully. And that may have knocked the tempo off any sort of escalation, particularly when complemented with a move that I actually think the Trump administration deserves some credit for, which is the decision not to respond and further escalate in response to that rocket attack. So the combination of two factors, I think, probably tamped down the immediate escalation. Other lower grade forms of escalation, I think, might have happened, but agree not quite at the scale I would expect, certainly outside the Iraq context. In the Iraq context, we can get into that a little bit more. All right. So let's turn now to that Iraq context, Scott, where you see the, I think, the biggest a hit to U.S. interests. Walk us through, like we're idiots or kindergartners, what the Iranian response in Iraq was and how it hurt the United States and its interests. Sure. And and I think a caveat I have to go into here that Suzanne, I think, very wisely flagged for us is that to some extent we had seen movement in this direction already uh, in terms of the increasingly sort of bellicose and central role of Iran-backed militia groups like Qatab, Hezbollah, and popular mobilization forces, they're often called now, already happening even in advance of the Soleimani killing. Um, I suspect it escalated this uh, the rate at which that was happening, um, which I'll get into in a second, I, you know, we don't really 100% know. But I think it's worth flagging that and caveating that from the upfront. Um, but what we did see happen after the Soleimani strike is that the trend of attacks by these armed groups on U.S. diplomatic military presences actually increased by a substantial number, certainly for the first few months before the COVID wave hit, before you ha- saw an efforts and engagements by the Iraqi government and others. The United States responded to that in March of 2020, arguably even a little earlier, by doing a pretty significant realignment of its uh, particularly military personnel presence in the country. So it consolidated most of its military personnel on a couple of major military bases, Iraqi military bases that were more hardened, more secured um, from, you know, random rocket attacks and other attacks that are the types of uh, attacks these groups are most equipped to pursue. That, I think, hardened position probably was able to limit a lot of the fallout from these attacks because we've seen these groups move to different sorts of tactics, not just rocket attacks. Now we see more and more armed drones and sophisticated technologies being used to try and actually go into these bases and target the U.S. presences and often these the Iraqi military presences that are cohabitating on these military bases. You know, it's worth noting this whole exchange that led to Soleimani's killing was triggered by the killing of uh, one American contractor in December 2020. That was a red line the Trump administration had drawn. That's what led the Trump administration to reestablish to try and do what Secretary Pompeo described he was trying to do with the Soleimani strike, which is to reestablish deterrence. But we've seen a number of American contractors and service members in the case of a March 2020 attack in Erbil killed in subsequent attacks. Um, so the rate at which Americans have been killed in these attacks, American service members and and, and personnel uh, has increased substantially. Um, so they have proven more deadly um, than they did in the years prior to December 2020. That's a, we have that kind of military front that is is two sided. One, there's more threats to U.S. people personnel. The other side of that is that the United States has had to respond by consolidating its military presence in the country in a way that limits its operational capacity. Um, the reason why U.S. military forces had spread out to a bunch of smaller bases prior to December 2020 um, was because they found that more effective to engage with Iraqi military forces in the counter-ISIS campaign that they're they're supporting. When they're consolidated on a few military bases, they're doing everything at a distance. It's more difficult. So there's an operational kind of loss there as well. But I think the biggest front has probably been on the political front. You know, For the last 20 years, uh, just about, 
the United States military involvement in Iraq has been very, very controversial in Iraqi public opinion, and particularly as channeled through the elites in the Iraqi legislature. And so we saw shortly after the Soleimani strike, the Iraqi legislature take what has often been described as a non-binding, actually not sure that's technically correct, but a, it did not have the immediate effect of forcing a U.S. troop withdrawal, but basically endorsed the idea that the U.S. troops need to leave the country, as well as Western coalition troops who are there as part of the counter-ISIS coalition. And that led to a multi-month diplomatic effort, beginning with the Trump administration, um, that led to a reduction in the number of U.S. troops there, although to what extent that was unilateral response to the security posture, to what extent that was part of the diplomatic negotiations, a little ambiguous, continued with the Biden administration and culminated this past month at the end of 2021 with a decision to say no more U.S. troops are going to be involved with any sort of combat activities in Iraq. Same number of troops are going to be there, but they're all going to be doing support and assistance, supporting from a distance, advice and assist sort, sorts of missions, about 2,500 U.S. personnel. And that itself is seen and has been framed, I think, correctly as an effort to bolster the position of the Iraqi prime minister, Mustafa al-Kadami, who most people see as somebody who is probably very supportive of a U.S. military engagement and support in the country, would like to have seen more of it, at least sustain it, but instead do the domestic political controversy surrounding uh, U.S. military activity in Iraq, not just the Soleimani strike, but subsequent strikes by both the Trump administration and the Biden administration, has been forced to engage in this diplomatic dialogue focused on framing a wind down of U.S. troops. And this is where they've landed. And I think people are saying, hopefully there's a level at which it's going to sit. But we have a new Iraqi government that's going to come into play soon. Um, the dominant faction in that new Iraqi government is led by Muqtad al-Sadr, a figure who has been hostile to the U.S. presence in the past, although not quite as hostile in rhetoric recently, um, but is seen very much as an Iraqi nationalist. In some ways, that's probably a good thing um, for the United States because his rise has been uh, paralleled with a substantial decline in support for the popular mobilization forces and these other Iran-backed militia groups that, that suffered a major loss in that election. But it still puts the United States in a very difficult position because it's the Sadrists, you know, historically have been very hostile to the United States to the point of not even engaging um, the U.S. diplomatic presence at all when in charge of ministries and other capacities. Um, so I think it's pretty unclear what they're going to do when they get into office. And it's created these domestic political conditions where even though there's widespread popular discontent with Iran's role in Iraq, that's now been paralleled by this hostility and discontent with the increased U.S. military activities in Iraq without the Iraqi government's permission, which in my mind is a little bit of a, if not a lost opportunity, at least an unnecessary mudding of the political picture uh, in regards to um, how Iran and the United States are, are pursuing activities within Iraq. Suzanne? I just wanted to step back to um, Iran's initial response on January 8th, 2020. And it really does bear on the Iraq context that Scott has just been speaking to. But I, I think at the time it was unclear as to whether the relatively limited nature of the casualties that the United States suffered, and it was obviously not zero, as uh, the President Trump said at the time, but it, it, it did not, in fact, cost the lives of any uh, U.S. troops on the ground in the initial aftermath. There were some, and certainly I was among them, who, who posited, in fact, that might have been a deliberate um, calculation by the Iranians, that they wanted to hit hard, but not quite hard enough to precipitate an American response as a result of significant casualties. I think that all the information that we've learned in the public sphere since that time indicates that it was just very good luck that we did not find ourselves in a much 
more severe escalation with Iran, that there was some advance warning, that there were some efforts to prepare for uh, the attack and to limit the casualties, but that it was a very, very frightening situation and one in which uh, a few degrees of difference in terms of the trajectory of the rockets might have resulted in a very different picture. Um, and so when we think about you know, the sort of scenario that we're in today, two years later, um, I think that we can um, take some uh, comfort in the fact that, cold comfort perhaps, that, that there was a certain degree of luck that meant uh, that the Iranian initial response was significant enough for the leadership to take some uh, sense of, of pride and, and say to their own people that they had not simply let this attack go unresponded. But it also may have scared them off combined with uh, the negative backlash to the downing of the Ukraine airline civilian passenger jet it may have scared them off uh, in terms of, of trying to launch a, a wider series of retaliations against the United States. So I want to ask finally, before we circle back to the, the, the biggest of big pictures here, I want to ask about the relationship between this and the nuclear talks, which is if we take seriously the idea that, hey, the Iranians are, are pretty sophisticated actors who play tactical games with care, they didn't want to provoke a war with the Trump administration. They hoped for and got the end of the Trump administration. And since the Biden administration has come in, there has been the possibility of the renewal of the Iran deal or the nuclear deal. And, you know, maybe part of the restraint has been uh, not wanting to upset that particular apple cart. So Suzanne, what, what do we know or what can we assume about the uh, relationship between uh, the relative restraint of the Iranian response and the nuclear negotiations off and on, though they be? I think there's probably some direct relationship between um, the Iranian decision not to take another um, very high profile and publicly attributable retaliatory attack against the United States and their efforts to arrive at a, a status quo around uh, the, their economy, which is sustainable for them. And that is either through a, nuclear, a new nuclear deal or a re reconstitution of the original nuclear deal or through um, the widespread willingness of key actors such as China to do business with Iran in violation of the sanctions that the United States has put in place and remain in place today. But I think ultimately, you know, the Iranians um, never saw the nuclear deal as a sort of transformational uh, change in their relationship with the United States. And I think that if and as we succeed in finding some uh, manageable arrangement with the Iranians, which restrains their nuclear activities and provides them with greater economic opportunities in return, that will have almost no bearing on the way that they pursue their interests across the region and the extent to which they're prepared to use violence and to effectively um, engage with actors uh, around uh, that, are, that are proxy malicious for them, even if it in some way complicates the relationship with the United States or their diplomatic posture 
more widely. And that's simply because um, they've never essentially been asked to in any way uh, tie improved economic prospects that were the function of the original nuclear deal to any other changes in behavior. That was never the understanding of the deal. It was the hope that many in the United States and Europe had around the original nuclear deal. But if that hope was ever realistic, it is certainly not realistic today. So I think the best that we can hope for is some kind of an arrangement which constrains Iran's nuclear ambitions. But if we're going to change the way Iran operates around the region, we're going to have to use tools other than diplomacy. All right. Before we zoom back out to the big picture, Scott, uh, it would be improper of Lawfare to finish a podcast on this subject without asking the legality question. As I recall, you had uh, significant anxieties at the time of the strike about its lawfulness. Uh, How have those, I suppose those anxieties wouldn't have changed over the last couple of years, right? Not not particularly, although we have a little more clarity on uh, what the Trump administration put forward as its legal justification that I find maybe a little more problematic. Shortly after the strike, from a U.S. domestic law perspective, setting aside their national law perspective for the moment, I wasn't terribly surprised to see that the executive branch would think this was something that was within the president's power and even wrote a piece laying out, here's where I think the arguments they will make are based on past executive branch precedent, which basically was was borne out more or less. But there I noted, and I think this has really um, become even more true now, there's a real tension between even prior statements by the Trump administration itself in the context of its airstrikes in Syria, where there they really acknowledge, look, the fact that we're taking this sort of action in close proximity to Russian forces, another major power, brings in this risk of escalation. And so we have to take really concrete steps to limit that risk. And here's what we did in the in the Russia-Syria case. You know, we struck Syrian targets where we thought Russian troops were not co-located and that we, you know, did it at a time where we thought people were not going to be present. And so we really, really were aiming for just capacity reduction on the Syrian side, limiting risk of escalation with Russia. Basically, it took that requirement seriously, this idea that risk of escalation can push uh, a potential conflict out of what the president can pursue unilaterally to the area where it needs congressional authorization. That went away in the Soleimani case. There really is not much of a case that they took steps to limit the risk of escalation in this particular opinion pursuing this initial strike. Uh, In fact, they immediately responded as if there was going to be wide-scale escalation by telling Americans to leave the country, sending home non-essential personnel, going on lockdown in the country and a lot of big parts of the region. And then when we saw the heavily redacted OLC opinion supporting the justification come out just a few months ago... Once again, we see that there really wasn't an effort to really wrestle seriously with this escalation risk that I think is really troubling uh, because, look, you can say this Iran is not another major power, not the risk of the United States. It's maybe the risk of escalation is not substantial. And admittedly, there wasn't the large scale escalation we were all worried about in this case, but certainly was a real possibility you would want. I think, the executive branch to wrestle with. And if they don't feel the real obligation to substantially wrestle with it here and to rely on the fact that, well, this is just kind of discrete military action, you know, the executive branch could do the same thing in regards to Taiwan or the Ukraine, um, that might be more problematic because then you're dealing with another much more substantial state where the risks of escalation are much higher, or at least the consequences of potential escalation, I should say, are probably much more severe. On top of that, you have the international law side of this, which is that The Trump administration initially suggested, in part trying to, it seems like, channel kind of international law and domestic law standards that they've kind of applied in the past, 
to say, or domestic policy standards, I should say, that Soleimani was directly involved in some sort of impending attack. You know, killing him interrupted the operational action that they were taking for some sort of impending attack that they had intelligence on. And then they walked back from that. And they never really stepped in to say that there was any sort of tie between Soleimani and a specific military action that could actually justify the idea that this is an act of self-defense on the path of the United States, a narrow act of self-defense, you know, not openly declaring war against Iran, but saying we're just responding to a discrete threat, which is even really under the U.S. interpretation of international law, usually what you need. There's a pattern uh, and kind of practice argument that comes into play and I think would come into play here basically saying, look, we saw this sort of pattern and we saw this sort of action and so we could anticipate and take kind of what looks like retributive action, in fact, to preempt other sort of offensive action against us. But it's not really clear how killing Soleimani interrupted any of that. Again, operationally, he actually wasn't that involved with a lot of these groups and we saw them be able to continue these attacks pretty rapidly uh, after this airstrike without any sense of it really interrupting it. So there's a real tension between what the United States did here and even its initial arguments as to why what it did was justified under international law and and prior U.S. positions in that regard. Now, the United States is not, you know, uh, I, I think the model state from it. for most people who believe in international law. Uh, there's often these sorts of tensions, but it pushes on that limit a little bit more than even the executive branch has in the past. And I think it's part of the reason why these legal opinions have been so controversial and are going to remain controversial uh, moving forward so long as they remain on the books is, is because they're just pushing it by inches, not by miles, but by inches into new terrain that I'm not sure we tread on before. All right. So I want to ask each of you to revisit the position that you took two years ago when we had this conversation with the caveat that I haven't gone back and listened to that conversation, and I don't expect you guys will either. So we're working from memory here. But Scott, my recollection is that you were the most unalterably opposed to the strike. I assume based on what you've said today that nothing that has happened uh, in the two years since has led you to reconsider that. Is that fair? Yeah, I, I, that's absolutely correct. Um, you know, I, I don't think the downside has been as severe as I was concerned. I was worried this was going to be the fatal blow to the U.S. Uh, military and diplomatic presence in Iraq uh, and that, you know, you could see retribution by Iran and other contexts. Neither of those has come out in the worst case scenario, but we've seen elements of both, particularly in Iraq, I would say. And I don't see much benefit coming out to balance out those costs. So uh, even setting aside the legal question, which I think is also problematic on a strict you know, national interest perspective, I, I, I think the case is still hard to make. Dan, you, uh, as I recall, were uh, very conflicted and may have been a, a, a shade leaning against it, but you had really mixed feelings. How do you feel about it now with two years of hindsight. It's hard to, if you follow Iranian terrorism as I do, to not be pleased when you see someone like Soleimani uh, meet justice. Uh, he was someone behind the killing of a lot of Americans and has uh, led Iran's effort to destabilize uh, many parts of the Middle East. That said, I, I want to really emphasize a point Suzanne made earlier, which is that part of why this didn't escalate was really due to chance that had things gone a little differently in the Iranian response in Iraq, we would have seen um, Americans dead. We would have had a lot of pressure politically on the United States to ratchet up a response in turn. And I think the risk uh, was considerable. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't as bad as I feared um, at the time, but I think the risk uh, is still quite real. 
And as Scott pointed out, uh, there is a real question of what was gained beyond a sense of wanting to bring someone to justice. I think Iran's activities are still very aggressive in the region. So I don't think there's been dramatic change. I would say I'm still somewhat conflicted on this. I am glad uh, Suleimani was brought to justice, but I don't see huge gain in terms of changes in Iran's behavior. And I still think the potential risks were considerable. So, Suzanne, as I recall, you were rather to my surprise at the time, the person who was most sympathetic to taking the strike. How do you feel about it now? I think I'm very much in the same camp as Dan. Um, The world is a better place without Qasem Soleimani. The Middle East and Iran are a much better place without Qasem Soleimani. But as we knew at the time, Iran's capacity to wreak havoc was very well institutionalized. And, you know, I think that we see um, really uh, limited positive benefits from this attack, if any. And what we continue to see is uh, almost a normalization of assassination of key officials in the region. Uh, it was only about eight or nine months later um, when Mohsin Fakhrizadeh, the um, sort of godfather of Iran's nuclear program, was assassinated by a very sort of unique arrangement, a remote fired device uh, that is presumed to have been undertaken by the Israelis. And, and I do worry about what that is going to mean over the long term in the region, because as we've all discussed, the Iranians have considerable capability of, the, of their own. We've seen uh, leaders uh, from other parts of the region uh, undertake targeted hits against dissidents. And clearly, this is not a recipe for uh, a more safe, uh, secure or prosperous Middle East. And so... I think that you know we continue to suffer from uh, a lack of long-term uh, strategy when it comes to managing the still very important security interests that we have in the Middle East, even as we're trying to juggle those against perhaps more urgent and, and more serious threats um, from other corners of the world. We are going to leave it there. Suzanne Maloney, Dan Byman, Scott R. Anderson, thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and a day like today when we have three Brookings fellows on the show is a good illustration of why you need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. So become a material supporter at our Patreon page, buy our merch, and rate and review the show wherever you found us. Our audio engineer this episode is the great Tara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by, guess who? Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.